This is a 980 CKNW podcast. And welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, a sex show disguised as a health show. On this May long weekend, this beautiful Victoria Day, hopefully you're celebrating across Canada with your families and loved ones. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, registered nurse and sexpert. That's the cue to put the kids to bed. Grab your lover if you have one and stay with me. The benefits of great sex range from slashing your stress levels to decreasing your risk of chronic disease and heart disease as well. The benefits of good health means your relationship and sex life may improve, one or the other. Sex facilitates bonding and feelings of intimacy with your partner. This kind of connectedness does more than make you feel warm and fuzzy. It boosts your overall health. Tonight we're talking about healthcare breakthroughs, millennial prenups, the patient voice, fibromyalgia, how your what is the state of affairs in your relationship, and what might be killing your sex life. Remember, this show is not a replacement for medical advice. Please consult your physician. Uh, if you have anything that ails you. If you have questions for me, for me, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Or email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com. That's nursetalk at And now, Maureen's Health Headline. .com. Lots to cover on the program tonight, but right now I want to talk about panic attacks. Have you ever had a panic attack? Have you ever gone to the emergency department thinking you were having a heart attack and somebody actually said to you, you're actually having a panic attack? Uh, One of probably the most infamous panic attack was seen on live television in front of five million viewers was Dan Harris's. He's a correspondent with CBS News. I happened to have the opportunity to meet him in person once, and um, it was a bit of a groupie. But uh, so he talked about that, and he's also written a book called Ten Percent Happier. And uh, you know, panic attacks are real. And there's also a model who has shared, Karina Karudins, um, has shared her panic attack on Instagram with 100,000 of her followers. And that's received 300,000 views in a very short period of time. Uh, You know, that took a lot of courage. When we share our stories, we empower other people for sure. And, And that's really the whole point when somebody shares whatever they're going through in life um, oftentimes we are embarrassed by it or people shame others for what they're going through. And people that have anxiety uh, feel a bit embarrassed about it because they feel like they are alone on their island. And, and we, so many people belittle people who have or belittle mental health and they try to uh, sweep it under the carpet, but it won't solve the problem. And oftentimes that shame or that embarrassment or that fear of, you know, what is this? What's happening to me? Because oftentimes panic attacks don't actually have a trigger. So there's no inciting event that occurs prior to you having a panic attack. So I think this is an important conversation to have, and we need to continue to have it. And when uh, the, the model... Uh, Karina Karudin shared her video. She actually had so many comments of love and encouragement from her online community because people don't feel alone. I often have that 
asked of me when I see patients in a clinical practice. It'll be like 11.30 in the morning, and they'll say, oh, my gosh, they'll tell me what's bothering them or what has impacted their life or their relationship or what's happening with their sex life. And they'll say, have you ever seen anybody like this before? And, you know, I want to say the eight people that were here before you this morning, uh, these things are so common, but we don't talk about them, much like we don't talk about sex. We don't talk about anxiety either or panic attacks. So if you're wondering what a panic attack is, and there's actually panic attacks and then there's panic disorder, and I'll review that shortly. But panic attacks refer to incidents of extreme fear that are com- that are accompanied by physical symptoms like rapid heartbeat, sweating, uh, fear of doom, you might have shortness of breath, and about 2.7% of adults have had uh, panic disorder in the last year, and about 5% of people will experience panic disorder at some point in their life. Uh, panic attacks and panic disorders seem to be more prevalent in women than in men. Panic disorder is when you have that added fear that um, that this panic attack is going to happen again. And these panic attacks last for several minutes. If they last longer than that, they'll often send people to the emergency department. Your heart is pounding, you're sweating, you feel like you can't think, you can't breathe, you have this overwhelming sense of dread. Uh, when the panic attacks occur, they typically occur at unpredictable times. As I said, there's often no trigger. And and so panic disorder, it's like without any reason or warning, you have this feeling of horrific anxiety that comes crashing down on you. You feel like you can't get enough air. You're trying so hard to breathe. Your heart is pounding out of your chest, and you're actually thinking that you might die. You may be sweaty. Um, you may have... Um, may feel dizzy, and you feel like you have no control, and you just don't even know what is happening. And this can seem like it is going on forever and ever. People with panic disorder have sudden and repeated, and that's the critical piece, repeated attacks of fear that last for several minutes or longer. And so these panic attacks are characterized by a fear of disaster or of losing control, even when there is no real danger. A person may have a fairly strong physical reaction during a panic attack, and that's why you see a lot of people turning up to the emergency department um, feel like they're having a heart attack. Um, And when they learn that they've actually had a panic attack, they're a little bit surprised by that. Panic attacks can occur at any time. And many people with that panic disorder worry and they have this dread about the possibility of having another attack because they could be driving, they could be going to work, they could be going to the grocery store, they could be going to school. And typically these panic attacks begin in the late teens or in early adulthood. Uh, Not everyone who has uh, experienced a panic attack, and it certainly can be triggered by an event or something that you're nervous about, but it doesn't have to be that way necessarily. Um, Not everyone who experiences panic attacks will develop panic disorders, a panic disorder. Panic disorder 
sometimes runs in families. Oftentimes I say anxiety is contagious. Um, And so this is an anxiety disorder, but of a different level, a different caliber. No one knows for sure there may be some genetic component why family members have it while others don't, why some uh, parents have it and their children have it as well. There are several parts of the brain as well as biological processes that play a role in fear and anxiety. Some, some researchers believe that people with panic disorder misinterpret harmless bodily sensations as threat, as a threat. And so those chemicals, you know, can react in your brain. And so understanding how the brain works is critical for creating the best treatments. And of course, people are always looking at ways in which stress and environmental factors may play a role. So people with panic disorder may have sudden and repeated panic attacks of overwhelming anxiety and fear. They feel like they're out of control or they have a fear of death or impending doom during that attack. They have physical symptoms like pounding or racing heart, sweating, chills, trembling, breathing problems, shortness of breath in particular, can't feel like you can't get the air in, weakness or dizziness. They may also experience tingling or numb hands. They may actually experience chest pain, which is what brings them to the emergency department in the first place. Um, Stomach pain they may have, nausea, some people may vomit as well. But they have also this intense worry about when the next panic attack will happen. So it's almost is a trigger for anxiety um, and worry about what if it happens again. And, and people will isolate themselves or they may not go to work or they may not go to school. They may not go to a party. So they avoid places where panic attacks have occurred in the past. So it's really important that you see your doctor. If you've experienced a panic attack, you see your doctor about that. Or if you feel you may have panic disorder, and again, you need to speak to your doctor about this, but if you've had repeated or you have this fear or you're avoiding places, it's critical that you speak to your doctor about your symptoms. Your doctor should do a physical exam and ask about your health history to make sure that an unrelated physical problem like thyroid disease um, is not causing your problem. So your doctor may actually refer you to a mental health specialist, perhaps a psychiatrist or a psychologist, because psychotherapy, a particular type, cognitive behavioral therapy, is especially useful as a first-line treatment for panic disorder because CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness cognitive behavioral therapy, teaches you different ways of thinking, behaving, and reacting to the feelings that come on with a panic attack. The attacks can begin to disappear once you learn to react differently to those physical sensations of anxiety and of fear that occur during your panic attacks. Some doctors may also prescribe different types of medications, but really that's you know the second line treatment because one of the um, a couple of the of the medications are difficult ones like the benzos, the benzodiazepines. You know they can be addictive and. And then also the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or the SSRIs like the Prozacs and the Paxils and the Zolofs, those are difficult to come off. So once you're on them, you know, uh, make sure your doctor talks to you about antidepressant withdrawal syndrome or AWS. Um, There's also SNRIs as well, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, and the same, you can withdraw from those and or, or have difficulty withdrawing from those. And then beta blockers is another type, and that will slow your, your cardio vascular system to slow down your heart rate, slow down your breathing, may help you sleep at night as well. Um, So that kind of slows everything down um, for you. So 
Um, it's important that you deal with your doctor um, with this and, um, you know, speak to a psychologist um, and, you know, ask your doctor a you know, lots of questions and um, providing information to your doctor can help improve the care that you receive. And that also helps you to build trust. So make sure you um, are comfortable speaking to your doctor because when you have a trusting relationship with your physician, you will have better results, quality, safety, and ultimately satisfaction and hopefully overcome these panic attacks. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We're going to start with a couple of callers here. We have Evelyn from Winnipeg on the line. Hello, Evelyn. Hi. Um, I did call at one point with regards to um, you mentioning post-traumatic stress disorder, that last episode. I think that was back in the middle of April. But anyways, um, this one is regards to the panic attack. I Mm -hmm. did get my very first panic attack in 97. And this was, this was interesting because when I was recommended to a psychologist, okay, to discuss the, the symptoms that I had or whatever, had everything to do with built-up abuse that I was dealing with with employment, with mm-hmm. family, with, um, with peers, basically. Within five minutes, he told me that I'd been abused. So with, with, in, with respect to that... Everything was good. I was recommended um, lorazepam, some anxiety medicine. Mm-hmm. Everything was good. For seven years, I was managing, managing these symptoms, no problem. Then I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. <laughs> and again, prior to my diagnosis, the same type of abuse situations were occurring, which means that you, your body isn't able to fight it off or you're, you're not capable of standing up for yourself when you're taken advantage of type of stuff like that. And that's probably what most people are dealing with, the fact that they don't want to see it as a mental illness. They want to see it as someone, you know, like passing the blame onto someone else causing these problems for you. But the thing is, we we all have to stand on our own two feet. And if there is a problem, you have to seek help for it. Absolutely. You're so right. And, you know, so many people are living in... Um, such challenging situations, especially in relationships. And later on in the program, I'm going to be talking about different types of relationships, different styles of people, and how that can impact mental health of the partner. And you're right, oftentimes people cannot find their voice and cannot speak up for themselves. They weren't taught that as a child. Maybe they were abused as a child or uh, treated unfairly or neglected. And these things um, do incite a fear and anxiety in, in people. And you're, you're absolutely right. Our circumstances can lead to anxiety. And it sounds like you're doing well today, though, Evelyn? Um, um, I have one more, qu- one more question. Mm-hmm. I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with um, anxiety slash panic attacks, and they're mm-hmm. sneaking up behind me, mm-hmm. and I'm not expecting them now. Right. So, yeah, so I've dealt with, I've had bipolar for 15 years, mm-hmm. and the fact of the matter is it's almost like I'm going back to the same, same way of dealing with things back in my past, and I don't know how to, how to um, like stand back on my own two feet again. It's very difficult. Sometimes practicing or finding, I find um, using a mantra, you know, a particular statement or, you know, yeah. um, finding the words or speaking to, hopefully you're still um, speaking to somebody, a trusted healthcare practitioner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. am I am to some extent. However, you know, um, some, sometimes they just want to go for the medication and not do uh, with the psychotherapy. Uh, which... Exactly. But I find practicing the words, you know, setting, set, stepping back and then practicing whatever that is. Anyway, thank you so much, Evelyn, for your call. We have Dale from Calgary on the line. Hello, Dale. 
Um, thank you very much. I, I enjoy your show. Thank you. Um, is anxiety the same as loneliness? You know, it's not the same, Dale, but loneliness frequently occurs with mood and anxiety disorders. And also, um, anxiety disorders can lead to loneliness. Um, People with panic disorder, panic attacks, and agoraphobia, fear of leaving the house, are are typically prone to uh, feelings of loneliness. And so it's important to get past these feelings and become more connected to other people. And, you know, it's just kind of going out and... Um, you know, yeah, I'm not into the social media thing. That's okay. That's not the only way to go out. Um, you know, sometimes people do feel this isolation and this emptiness. You may feel separated from the world and it's okay. Not everybody, probably fewer people are on social media than are, than we think. Um, but you know, it's important to take care of yourself, self-care, be an active participant in life, uh, go out to the gym perhaps, or be of service to others, do things for other people, maybe build a panic disorder support network. And you do gardening. Yeah, I do gardening. That's fantastic. And so, you know, it sounds boring to a lot of your callers. No, I think that sounds like a great thing to do in touch with mother nature. Always good, but maybe do some join a gardening club might be a good idea to uh, be around some other people. Yeah, I listen to it every Sunday morning, but I enjoy your show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dale. I appreciate the call. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Well, the boomers may not just have all of the money, they may have all of the good health as well. Dr. Paul O is Good Life Fitness Chair of the Cardiac Disease Prevention and Rehabilitation Program at the University Health Network. He's based in Toronto and joins me on the line. We're talking about those boomers who started exercising when aerobics classes and running was all the rage, and they seem to be living healthier and longer lives these days, and Dr. Paul O is going to tell us all about that. Good, Hello, Dr. O. Hi, good evening, Maureen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Lovely to be with you as well. Thank you so much because I'm a big exercise fiend. (laughs) I believe in it for all of the reasons that are are well known about there, like mood and better sleep. However, there are some other benefits for people who exercise over the long term. So I'd love to hear more about that from you. Sure. As you say, we know that exercise has so many great effects on body, mind, spirit, uh, social. Uh, and, and we know that people that can do this over the longer period of time certainly do enjoy uh, better cardiovascular health, a better longevity, uh, freedom from illness. Uh, and it's really quite remarkable to see the success stories of people who have been able to do this successfully over time. So what are some of the benefits? Um, in our own program uh, in Toronto, we work with I don't know, a couple thousand people per year who are living with different kinds of chronic conditions like heart disease or diabetes or stroke. Um, you know, the goal of our programs is to get them on their feet, get them started into an exercise program. And then when we see them maintain that over the longer period of time, uh, we've actually been able to quantify that they enjoy reduced hospitalization, reduced um, uh, you know, interactions with, with healthcare system, and, and indeed better survival over the long term. That's amazing. Now, the best time to do anything was yesterday or 10 years ago, or if you're a boomer in the late 70s. So what about people who are living with those chronic conditions and they just think I'm overweight, I've got heart disease, I've got high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, there's no point, I can't get off the couch. What do you say to them? 
Well, I would say that it's never too late to get started. Um, you know, the, the, the old adage, you know, the first step is the most important step, which is absolutely true. So what, whatever condition that we're living with, but, you know, being realistic, I think, and setting those smart goals according to personal uh, vision, mission, wh- wherever you want to be. Uh, sometimes the mistake we make is trying to start off too fast and, and being unrealistic from the outset. So if you haven't been active and you're living with one of those kinds of conditions, you know, consider it a victory just to start getting up regularly and then getting out for five minutes a day and then building up, uh, building that up slowly and steadily over time. You know, folks in our program, uh, many of them have said they, they haven't been active in years. Uh, and the goal will be, yes, starting with those simple kinds of programs, 15 minutes at a comfortable pace, adding five minutes every couple of weeks, gradually ramping up the level of exertion, uh, so that we can get out to that 45 minutes a day or so. Um, and then overall, over the course of the week, if we can accumulate at least 30 minutes a day, five days a week, uh, reach the Canadian Physical Activity Guideline of 150 minutes a week of moderate activity, then we're well on our way to really turning around a lot of those kind of uh, health impairments and, uh, you know, being physically fit, mentally fit, biochemically fit over the long term. You talk about mental fitness or being mentally fit, uh, dementia, something that is on the rise. People are living a bit longer. There seems to be no cure just yet, but exercise has de- been demonstrated to reduce your risk of getting dementia. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so as we say that, you know, the uh, exercise is good for both mind and body together. It, and it shouldn't be surprising given that, you know, all the blood vessel circulation connects uh, top to bottom. Um, things that affect our heart, like inflammation, which has come on as one of the underlying reasons that we develop heart conditions, is actually the same process that might affect the brain for conditions like dementia or Alzheimer's or cognitive issues of different sorts. So exercise can be one of those ways of of mitigating inflammatory responses, improving blood flow to the brain. And you're quite right that, you know, although our focus in the last couple of decades has been in search of medication therapies to try to turn around cognitive issues, uh, I think many people will say maybe the best thing that we can do is get out and be active, preferably at an early age and continue that on into our senior years, or use exercise as a therapy to maintain our cognition. In some of our studies uh, in in people with cardiovascular conditions, indeed, we can show that if you combine cardiovascular exercise, walking, jogging, swimming, cycling, along with weight training a couple times a week, we can show actually improvements in things like executive function, memory, uh, ability to execute tasks. So, so we are quite excited about the the role of exercise as a way of of uh, staving off declines in our brain function over time. And and there have been some studies that demonstrate that leisure time physical activity at midlife reduces the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So it's it's only a couple of times a week. Is that correct? That somebody needs to start out, and as you say, start out slowly. Yeah, I, I think that's great. Just to start that off slowly and steadily. Um, And, you know, the concept of leisure time is uh, making sure that we're active through the day in addition to 
you know, planned program periods of activity that we might uh, label as exercise. So the combination of the two is really quite good uh, and, and complementary in nature. Uh, and in fact, we really have to hit both of those things. So exercise regularly, don't be sedentary, uh, and think about how we can re-engineer our days uh, so that those things do happen. So that they're part of your schedule. You actually, you know, may schedule time to clean your office or to do your budgeting, also schedule time to do exercise. And and in my world, I yeah. actually often have to advise people to have sex, to schedule sex a couple of times a week. And that's not enough activity, physical activity, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to um, in to improve your uh, cognitive decline uh, like <laughs> as much as exercise. People give a lot more calorie burning to sex than, than it deserves. But nonetheless, sex will be easier and you'll be more mobile as well if you're used to, you know, jogging and getting those, those bones yeah. moving. Um, also, and, yeah, I, and of course the social connections are so, so amazing as well. Right? They certainly are, exactly. So one thing I'm curious about, so for people who are showing early signs of cognitive decline, beyond the normal age-related, I've lost my keys type of thing, would you uh, suggest an exercise program for them? And have you seen any patients whose executive function or, cognitive, uh, or cognition has improved given that prescription? Yeah, so, so in both of those... Um, uh, both of those scenarios, we actually have uh, seen positive changes and have some experiences. Uh, you know, together with colleagues, uh, we have been in, engaged in a, a few studies over the last few years, looking at people specifically with mild cognitive impairments, um, enrolling them in exercise programming either on site or at home, whatever environment works for you. Um, and then doing those measures of, of short-term memory, executive function, uh, and, and in fact, we do see positive changes in the abilities to learn things like like we might do a test of where we give you a list of words and see if you can recall them at, at five minutes later for instance and we see improvements in those sorts of things the other interesting thing is that we're looking to see uh, improvements in blood flow to the brain and, and even structural changes in the in the brain in areas like the hippocampus where you know these are the important things for registering memories and uh, impacting on mood so lots of great things can happen when we do those exercises uh, and get started, preferably keep them going over the long term, finding those community connections into whether it's a fitness club like A Good Life or uh, your local YMCA or walking around your block. Any one of those things that keeps us going over the long term is going to be a benefit okay. uh, for the brain and for the heart and the rest of you. Okay, I have one question for you. I had a um, patient tell me that his neighbor um, plays golf every day, but he also looks like he's about to have a baby. <laughs> he's got a rather large <laughs> stomach. Does the type of exercise you choose, should you mix it up? Does that matter? Yeah, so I, I, I think uh, mixing is a great idea. So I think there's two things to unpack there. One, you know, I, I think the best kind of exercise for any individual is the one that you enjoy the most. Uh, so uh, any kind of cardio exercise uh, mixed with any kind of weight training exercise is, is a great recipe, and there's lots to mix and match. Uh, for the golfer, it depends on how one golfs. It, it's certainly great to be out there, and, uh, and that counts as leisure time activity. It may not be terribly aerobically demanding, though, depending on how one golfs. Uh, you know, if, if you're a straight-line golfer and you use a cart, then you're not getting in there very many steps. Um, 
So, in fact, a skilled golfer may, may not get in very much. If, if you're walking the course uh, or, or speed walking the course, then you certainly will get a great workout in. So, so you, can, you can mix and match that. Um, the other thing with, with Canadians with the with kind of the round belly syndrome, uh, we certainly do think that that's a risk, of course, for cardiovascular conditions and diabetes and other things. So, you know, having excess waist circumference is, is a hazard. Exercise by itself may not be enough to, to modify that, however. So we have to think, of course, of, of good nutrition and couple that with the regular exercise program would be a step towards um, improving that sort of profile. Wonderful. And the more steps, the better. Dr. Paul O, internal medicine and cardiac rehabilitation expert. Thank you so much for talking to us tonight about the health benefits of committing to fitness over the long term. Where can people get more information? Come and check us out at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center at the University Health Network in Toronto. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. It's important that you stay in the bedroom. Many of you are going to sleep with me right now, only because you tell me. I go to bed with you every Sunday night is what I often hear from people. It's important that you have a healthy relationship so that you are able to stay intimate with the one that you love over the long term. And I was reading something on Twitter. I don't know if any of you have seen this, and not everybody is on social media, as I said earlier in the program, but there was a couple uh, in the States uh, who had fallen, they had met online a few years ago, they had fallen in love, and like many young couples, they didn't have a whole lot of money uh, to pay for expensive engagement rings. A lot of people put a lot of focus on, this could be a bit of a red flag, if somebody's putting a lot of focus on the ring or the wedding or the wedding dress or the destination or it has to be this, it has to be that way. Lots of, um, you know, criteria to have the perfect to make it all look so amazing. Well, this couple was truly in love. How, how unusual is that? Um, and so they didn't have a lot of money and... He, Quinn, and then their names are Quinn and Ariel, um, had decided that they would um, just get some rings that were representative of their love and their commitment toward one another. And uh, they didn't want to hold off getting married too much longer. So they went into a Pandora store and they purchased uh, a set of rings and it was sterling silver, or silver, I guess, um, sterling silver and cubic zirconia. And the set was about $130 US. And they were publicly humiliated by the sales clerk who made some comment like the allegations are um, something like, uh, can you believe a guy can get away with getting paying only $130 for an engagement ring and, and wedding band? And uh, the apparently Quinn was feeling very sad about this and already feeling inadequate because this is a social pressure. Who really cares what's on your finger? Um, and and so this idea of I was talking to somebody today, in fact, about the diamond industry and how it's really controlled by one particular company, and you know, in terms of supply and demand, and that's what has driven up the prices. I was also talking to another woman who has recently gotten divorced, and she said one she's learning a lot about finances, but she said one mistake she made was that she in insured her engagement ring to the tune of $750 over the past 22 years. Uh, and, um, you know, anyway, I had another client who 
uh, her wedding rings were stolen and they were insured, but she got a beautiful set of cubic zirconia. She said she wasn't wasting the money on, <laughs> on diamonds. Um, so, you know what, those things don't matter in a relationship, uh, because, you know, at, when you're trying to pay the mortgage and raise the kids and deal with issues and loss and job issues and all that sort of thing, you're not thinking, yay, I'm maintaining this be- all because I have a gorgeous diamond. I did have a couple in my clinical practice once. She came in because of low sexual desire. He had purchased a $20,000 diamond ring in hopes that she would have sex with him. So needless to say, this couple didn't get married in the end. (laughs) I do typically help couples stay together, not go apart. But uh, that gentleman has met somebody else because she was saying, I'm just focusing on this beautiful diamond right now. And, you know, I had to be real with her and say, there's a guy behind that diamond. And, you know, if the intimacy isn't there now... It's likely, unlikely to return before you've even walked down the aisle. Occasionally, I run into that gentleman on uh, this near where I work, and he's got a new woman in his life, and it, it appears as though he has a child now, and he's happier than Larry. I had to give him uh, some financial advice as well, which is frightening, um, but I, I often, when I see him, I'll say, aren't you glad you kept that condo? Uh, those prices are soaring now. But we have to look at the different types of relationships. And and that really means acknowledging the current state of your union, acknowledging how you are together as a couple. So in our desire to manage or untangle our relationships, we're constantly trying to view them through different lenses. And and oftentimes we struggle to connect the dots. And is this issue about me? Is this issue about my partner? What's the deal here? Has there been tension over the last few weeks? Is that just a, a blip because of stress? because he's lost his job or she's lost her job or or is it the tip of the iceberg of some bigger problems? But there are different types of relationships. And you know what? Not all of them are that good. And you see this playing out. I can see it in part because I deal with this quite commonly. You know, the different um, ways people treat one another, uh, the different personalities. And so there's one type, which is the competitive and controlling couple. These, this type of couple jockeys for power about whose way is better, who's right, who wins the argument, who has the last word, whose expectations and standards do you follow, whose career is more important, is it all about the money? There are lots of arguments that quickly turn into power struggles and battles over getting that last word. And so this emotional climate can be quite tense. And where you find this is typically two strong personalities who are battling for control. And their self-esteem is based on winning. It doesn't necessarily have to be both of them. It can be one of them. There's one that's typically in charge and, and that can switch. Often there are rigid ideas regarding how things should be done. This wasn't designed that way. We can't do that. This type type of thing or criteria for success of what makes a good life. Maybe it's like, let's just show the world that everything is perfect. This is We have to buy this particular particular type of designer, whatever, because we, people will be judging us. Over the long term, these types of couples get tired of battling and they typically end up parting ways. Or one finally concedes or they both finally define their own turfs that they're in charge of. Or if there's some underlying mental health condition, one person or, or both of them get the help that they need. And so there's always, you always have to raise an eyebrow when there's this controlling feature. And, you know, people can control through sex as well. 
uh, sex is definitely a power tool and sometimes it's used in a negative fashion. There's also the active and passive couple. And one partner is typically in charge and does most of the heavy lifting while the other one just goes along and just is, is kind of ruled by the, the more active one. Uh, oftentimes these start out as competitive relationships and one eventually the easier going one concedes. Um, but all, more often this is an imbalance from the start. They have very few arguments, although uh, the active person may become resentful for carrying the load or not getting enough appreciation. They may act out and then they revert back to their uh, same role. This is a pretty neutral climate and these relationships often start with the active partner taking on the helper role. So the personalities are guided by being nice and I think it's always better to be kind versus nice. Making others happy, so uh, people pleasing, being over responsible, they typically are conflict avoidant, a lot of people are. As children they were the good child and the more passive partner may be easily overwhelmed with anxiety, they may have been spoiled or babied as a child child and they continue to feel entitled or overwhelmed as an adult. They feel this pressure and they continue to lean on others and they let others lead the way for them. But these dynamics are often less the result of personalities and more that of undetected or unrealized problems like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, or other mental health issues, substance use and abuse, where the active partner is always feeling the need to compensate for the other. Or when physical problems suddenly arise, like a partner develops a chronic illness, for example, forcing the other partner to step up and be the caretaker. Over the long term, the risk for the active partner is that she, he will either get periodically burnt out or resentful, or burnt out and leave. Um, so there's a big risk of uh, divorce in this type of dynamic. The partner left behind either needs to come become more independent or find someone else to take over. Then there's the aggressive, accommodating type of power relationship. And the power difference is not based on caretaking, but on raw power. One par- person is clearly in charge. They are the uh, CEO, executive director, and the other accommodates less out of passivity, and they accommodate typically out of fear. They're afraid to say something to somebody for their response. They're afraid they might offend the CEO or the executive director, the manager of everybody else's life but their own. While the intimidating partner will easily blow up, there is little actual conflict. There's always emotional abuse here, and oftentimes there's physical abuse. This is a high tense situation or climate. The accommodating partner is always walking on eggshells and you often hear them saying that. And the intimidating partner is clearly a bully who may have anger management problems. He or she may have grown up in a home where there was an abusive parent and they had learned to identify with that parent. And underneath may be high anxiety that it translates into extreme control or it can be a character disorder that translates into narcissism, power, and they have very little empathy for others. And the accommodating partner maybe grew up being abused and so has a higher tolerance for such behavior, but oftentimes they have a higher tolerance for this. There are disconnected parallel lives, people who they don't argue, but there's no connection. They go on autopilot. They have their own routines. They do their own things. The relationship is stale. They have little in common. They're more roommates than lovers. And these, these climates are boring, stale, kind of normalish, 
courteous, they're cold. And some couples fall into this type of relationship within several years. They may have married for the wrong reasons. I talk about that quite a bit. What chemistry there was quickly faded, or they often swept the problems under the rug from the start, and they learn to use distance to avoid igniting any conflict. Others may move into this type of relationship with the mellowing that often comes with advanced age and or around menopause. And there's a new term out there called menovorce, which is kind of divorce around the menopause and oftentimes because there's vaginal dryness, which leads to painful sex and low sexual desire. And then sex falls off the table as well. Um, So oftentimes when parents may be really child-centric and now that the children have left home, they have little to hold them together. Um, And basically they talk about the weather and their kids and and their jobs and and whatever. Um, And so these people, they typically, they might stay together. There may be infidelity. There may be other issues. And then the best type of couple uh, out there are the accepting and balanced type. They are able to work together as a team. They complement one another. They do things together. They recognize and act accept the other one's strengths. They got, they've got each other's back. They're happy for the other person. They are interested in helping out their partner be who he or she or they want to be. They are able to revitalize the relationship when it begins to grow stale and they can solve problems together rather than sweeping them under the rug or rather than just blowing up over them. So this is a caring, respectful Uh, democratic climate. And they may start out this way because they both had good parental roles, or they may have started out with another form and then they got the right help they needed and the right therapy and, and they had insight and they were able to resolve and they have worked together to make things better. Midlife and older age crises may turn up, but they're able to work through them. So you know, some of these couples, when, you know, depending on your history and your personality, you know, it can make for a very unhappy situation. But know that with insight, which is the greatest gift, and some therapy and some uh, education, some reading, um, you can become an accepting and balanced couple. I am Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show here on the Chorus Radio Network. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.